0: Hello everyone, welcome to Talk Racing To Me With Naomi. I'm Naomi Tucker. It's very difficult to contain my excitement at the release of this first ever episode. It's the start of something new, something different, something fun. And this idea was conceived about last year, October, during my first ever three-way call with Peter Thomas Fornigel and Jonathan Kinchin. Of course, Jonathan Kinchin I've worked with during my time with the Naira team up in New York on Long Island. Credit to you all, guys. You're doing great. Really hope to be joining you again soon. And this idea that we came up with is basically centered around stories, I really want to emphasise this. Stories, stories, stories. It's what makes our lives go round, what makes everything special, from sports stories to historical tales to love stories. Of course, we'll also be covering some more informative topics in relation to the horse racing industry Which is what today partly covers when discussing the English Australian Easter sale, which was held as a virtual auction due to the recent outbreak of COVID 19. Full credit to the team up at English for being so forward thinking, being able to change their format on such short notice and really make sure to communicate with the vendors and buyers. So it was a very informative chat that I was very fortunate to have with English General Manager of Blood Suck Sales and Marketing, Sebastian Hutch. And he also spent a decade working as Coolmore Australia Sales Marketing and Racing Manager, so plenty of experience to dig into, and he managed to catch up with me all the way from Sydney, Australia. Now, of course, we're also going to cover some feel-good stories, such as today's chat with Jockey Forrest Boyce about rehoming eight to fast to catch the three-time Maryland Million Classic winner who is now happily hunting around the fields in Maryland. So aside from all the horse racing related tales, I wanted to express the fact that I'm definitely planning on having some guests on here that might have a bit more of a looser tied to horse racing but are very much intriguing to hear from. So a lot of different and entertaining and informative content that will be coming your way as of today. So let's get started with the English Australian Easter sale that happened just about a week ago and definitely succeeded far beyond the expectations of everyone involved. Sebastian Hutch, English General Manager of Bloodstock Sales and Marketing. You've joined the English team after about a decade, working as Coolmore Australia's sales, marketing and racing manager, as well as a member of the Coolmore Australia Advisory Board. First of all, how are you and your wife, as well as your son, doing? Have you been able to stay safe and healthy during these challenging times?
1: Yeah, look, we're probably reasonably fortunate in that... to this stage, anyway, the Australian government has been very accommodating of uh, business in general in terms of being, allowing people to continue to work as much as is practicable. So, there are a lot of people working from home, etc. But fortunately it hasn't the pandemic hasn't affected uh, people close to me at this stage. But obviously, we're very conscious of trying to take all the necessary precautions.
0: And as part of those precautions, it also included a different format for this year's. English Easter, Australian Easter Yearling Sale, you ended up holding the English Australian Easter Sale as a virtual auction. And it was, correct me if I'm wrong, the first sale of this magnitude and quality to be conducted online. Now, I was having a bit of a look into it. Instead of it being a fully digital auction, it was a virtual auction. Now, could you explain the differences between that concept?
1: had online bidding for, I believe, in excess of 10 years, where in the course of a traditional live auction, uh, people were also able to log into a, an English account, bid real-time through their computer or their phone or their iPad. And then, alternatively, for the last two and a half years or so, English have been running uh, purely digital auctions. That means uh, the extent of the catalog is, or the catalog is published online. Uh, horses never leave their wherever they're domiciled. The extent of the inspections carried out effectively are videos, or photographs, or vet search or uh, other veterinary declarations provided online, and people bid through an English-developed uh, website portal. So that, that's been happening for two and a half years, and has turned over at this stage in excess of. Uh, I know in the last 12 months alone, it's turned over in excess of $25 million to those uh, digital sales. So when it became apparent that we couldn't host uh, a traditional uh, live auction with horses and patrons on the ground, we had to start to consider uh, alternative approaches to the sale. It was obviously deemed very important by our vendors and our buyers that we tried to facilitate some sort of sale. And we considered hosting as a digital auction through our digital platform and concluded in consultation with the vendors that this was going to be too far removed from what traditional yearling buyers would be used to. So instead we created a scenario whereby the videos that every vendor had done pre-sale would effectively serve as uh, sale ring footage and -hmm. they would play, play simultaneously to the horse being auctioned by an auctioneer in the ring and people were able to bid either by phone or through our internet portal and it worked very effectively.
0: Holding your flagship sale in a different setup must have been a tremendous cause for concern at Ingus. How did you and your team navigate the change and of course the corresponding pressure?
1: It was a very very unusual set of circumstances because uh, the nature of the restrictions in the country changed regularly as the nature of the pandemic evolved. Or developed, and so you set a plan, and there was a change, and you had to reconfigure the plan so a new plan, and it was another change you to reconfigure a new plan. Uh, so it, it became very challenging from that point of view because there was obviously a lot of discussion about moving dates. Uh, would we bring the sale forward? Would we push it back? And what was going to be the best way to try and facilitate a viable market at a time when we really couldn't predict the state of play? days in advance, let alone weeks or months. But once we committed to the idea of hosting the sale, at which our vendors were very keen for us to do, as were our buyers, because you know yearlings are very time-sensitive in terms of their preparation, et cetera. Um, Once we committed to the idea of getting it done, really, the IT department had a fundamental role to play in making it happen, but they did so very effectively, and really, it became quite exciting. We had a test auction the Tuesday before the sale, that went very well, you know, it prompted a series of inquiries that we were able to address in advance of the uh, real sale on Tuesday and it meant that, you know, it was effectively problem-free, which was, you know, the same stresses as an auction, making sure that uh, we're helping people as best we can get horses sold and helping buyers identify the right horses, but that's no different to any other auction, so really it was it was very enjoyable.
0: You mentioned that there were a few inquiries during that test run. What were the vendors or buyers concerned with?
1: Look, in an unusual sense, a lot of the queries were driven by the fact that there was massive volume to the test auction. And it didn't necessarily mimic the experience that people would have had during uh, the sale itself. Because there were so many people logged on, people found it hard to get a bid in. And just trying to explain to people that that wasn't going to be the case during during the auction itself. Um, And simple things like people wanting to be sure about uh, changing bidding increments or how would they communicate any errors through to the clerk, all of which there's a facility to do bidding on consecutive lots. They just wanted to be sure people could do things like that. And a lot of those issues were addressed very readily.
0: You mentioned before that you spoke to vendors and buyers, how did the process unfold in terms of getting all that feedback, did you have a team sort of ringing up the, the main vendors or main buyers to just sort of get their ideas in?
1: Oh look, in the case of uh, a number of the vendors and buyers, they proactively engage anyway. Um, you know, we we're, we're engaged with our vendors for a long time in advance of sale in terms of trying to make plans for getting horses sold. Um, you know, you, you speak to your major vendors, and we have a representative body here, TBA source they are very helpful in terms of their feedback from their, from their board and consequentially from the majority of vendors. Uh, we obviously had a significant number of New Zealand vendors in the sales, so you know we have the liaise directly with them also. Um, it, it's, it, it was a challenging process from the point of view of that we were chartering unfamiliar territory. And, you know, people are, there are obviously challenges associated with venturing into the unknown, Mm -hmm. but one thing was very clear, the majority of vendors were very keen for the sale to go ahead in some capacity, and similarly, buyers were very keen that they would have the opportunity to to acquire stock. I mean, I think something that's been regularly referenced in the period post the sale, it it is a significant factor that a lot of the horses are in New South Wales in advance of the sale, and then a number of vendors relocated to New South Wales. It made those horses more accessible to the buying bench. So a lot of buyers were able to come to Sydney, or were already in Sydney, and able to do the work through the Southern Highlands or up through the Hunter Valley, and either report back to their clients or report back to other agents or trainers. And it meant that a lot of people were able to get opinions on horses either by seeing them themselves or by reporting to people who are interested in it's meant that the clearance rate has climbed from you know i think the clearance rate at the end of the sale was 62% it's climbed to i think it might be 66 or 67 now uh, i think the turnover is a bit or two off 71 million you know so we've turned over 3 million dollars worth of horses since the sale finished on wednesday and it just goes to show you that there remains continued demand for that product
0: I was going to mention all the figures later because they definitely exceeded the expectations for this form of a sale or the sale held in this format. Now, I just wanna circle back to what you mentioned that people were able to go to the farms and have a look at the yearlings there instead of on the sales grounds. Now, I know that the English bloodstock team ventures far and wide to inspect the yearlings and determine which sale to place them in months ahead. Uh, did you guys go out nearer this sale? Cause I know that normally when the horses are on the ground, quite a few of you would still go and have sort of a, a last look. Did you go out and what kind of differences did you notice?
1: Well, we, sell, we generally, certainly in the, sale, in the case of a sale like Easter, where there's a, a select book, I mean, with 514 yearlings catalog for the sale originally, we set out with the objective of trying to see, really in advance of the sale, we set out with the objective of seeing every horse prior to the sale. We were on inspection trips to, um, to the Hunter Valley, the Southern Highlands, Victoria, um, and that covers off a lot of the stock, uh, the intention had been to try and get to New Zealand to Inspect the yearlings, and we had a representative in Queensland to have a look at the yearlings that were based up there with the view to having an opinion from an English Bloodstock team member of every yearling before they arrive in the complex. Uh, those plans are obviously made virtually impossible by the restrictions around the pandemic, uh, but we were still able to see the majority of the horses that remain in the sale. Effectively, I think the only horses that weren't seen by an English staff member in advance of sale were those in New Zealand. And it meant that we were able to give feedback on the yearlings to anybody who inquired. And we were also able to facilitate inspection trips by clients. I mean, a number of people will organise their own inspection trips independent of English. But we were also able to bring people with us while respecting the restrictions in place uh, to go and see yearlings farms are very understanding about it. You know, traditionally, it's fantastic to see a horse in its home environment prior to the sale and then see that horse might have developed in the intervening month or three weeks to, the, to when they arrive in the complex. Um, you know, just behavioural characteristics, you know, physical development, etc. You know, people like to have that perspective. You know, a lot of major trainers, it's always something that Gay Water has to be very keen to see. She likes to look at the earnings very early and then see the progress they've made through the preparation and when they arrive in the complex and see what changes she notices. And there, there are a number of the agents and trainers who do things the same way.
0: Under the circumstances, it's great that everyone was still able to go to these farms and see the yearlings. And as you mentioned, some of the yearlings relocating to New South Wales so people can uh, physically see them before the virtual sales started. Now, wanted to circle back to the results that you just mentioned. I'll briefly reiterate them for all the listeners, and then I'll get some of your feedback on it. So the medium was 250,000 Australian dollar, uh, only 10,000 less than last year. The average was $318,000.40, slightly down about 10% from the 353,511 recorded in 2019. There were $7 million yielding sold. And as you just mentioned, I was going to ask you about the end clearance rate. So you mentioned it settled about 67%, which is against last year's around 86%, uh, with The dust slowly settling on this year's renewal. What are your thoughts reflecting upon the success of this sale?
1: I wrote in the back of my catalogue what I thought the figures were going to be at the end of the sale. I was 15 minutes before the first lot went into the ring. And it's fair to say I was a long way out in terms of what I projected. I was, you know, to clear anything excessive, 50% was going to be an outstanding result for in my eyes, so to clear, I think we cleared 62% by the fall of the hammer on the last lot, and it's climbed to 66 or 67% now, and we'll continue to climb. You know, we, uh, I don't think it's realistic. I think we'll get to 70% clearance, but it, it, it might not be impossible. There's still a lot of inquiry for yearlings. The gross has grown to in excess of uh, 70 million, nearly 71 million. Obviously, with that, there'll be a consequential fall in average. Um, you know, we're not selling, but primarily we're not selling above average horses at this stage. We're selling horses that fall, you know, at slightly below average figure, people looking for value and vendors happy to accept a lower price than what they were originally hoping for. But the, I think what was very heartening was the nature of the competition, the nature of the engagement right throughout the auction, the support that we had from people that, you know the consistent feedback of how grateful people were to be afforded the opportunity to be part of a market, and the fact that it was a viable market. You know, it was it was a great learning experience for our business, uh, and certainly for our bloodstock team. And you just take an awful lot out of the experience. And uh, these are challenging times, and they're obviously not going to get any easier anytime soon. But uh, yeah, look, it was it was hard not to be hugely heartened by what happened.
0: You mentioned it was a great learning experience. What would be the key takeaways for your team if let's say you'd have to do something similar? Because unfortunately, we aren't out of the woods just yet when it comes to this global outbreak of COVID-19.
1: I think we've learned to an extent certain elements of what are important to to buyers uh, at a sale. I mean, I think a lot of vendors had requests for height and weight of yearlings. It's not something that people can easily provide you know, a lot of farms don't have weighing scales, but I think going forward, if we ever end up in this situation, you know, there are probably two measures that are going to be important to us or important to vendors in terms of being able to provide that to, to buyers. I think it became very evident that communication with buyers and regular communication with buyers, be it through websites or social media, for vendors was an important part of promoting your stock, you know, even more so than a traditional auction. You know, disclosures again were hugely important. The more information that people were able to garner, I think the more confidence they bid with. It was all about trying to generate confidence in the buying bench, and it felt like the longer the sale went on, the more buy- more confident the buying bench got. You know, even in terms of um, even in terms of the bidding, I would say the clearance rate at various stages through the sale was never stronger than through the final quarter on the. On the second day, I don't have the figures to back that up, but it just felt that way. Yeah. Um, replicating the same feeling you get at some auctions whereby people just become more and more determined to buy a horse and bid stronger as a consequence. We, we have our Chairman's Broodmare sale coming up in just over three weeks' time. We'll run the sale with a very similar format, and so a number of those things will take into that sale and have you know, already advised vendors as much.
0: I had a bit of a look at some of the concerns beforehand, and I'm not sure this ended up playing a role or not. But of course, um, the travel restrictions don't allow for any internationals to come into the country. So in relation to the international participation of the sale, was there still a bit of an international presence, even though the majority of big foreign buyers couldn't attend the sale like they normally would have?
1: Yeah, so international participation, I used Asian stock, served a period of isolation upon her Ivy in Sydney and subsequently went and inspected stock and bought, bought very well for um, Mr. Liang and some other clients. We had Dean Hawthorne, who's a New Zealand-based horseman who did his period of isolation and bought strongly for Jonathan Munns, you know, Paul and Catherine Moroni came back from New Zealand, served their period of isolation in Melbourne and subsequently bought. So there were, you know, there were people who were um, in a period of isolation just to be participants in the sale, which was, you know, we're very grateful for them or to them for doing that. There were also a number of international uh, investors who operated through agents. You know, people like Tom and Grant Pritchard Gordon bought two fillies at the sale. Uh, even though they never left new market they you know they liaised with vendors liaised with other agents um would bidders from japan europe the states Uh, again it all comes down to the volume of disclosure you know the more people knew about the horses the more confidence they bid with and that meant that uh international buyers were facilitated well as well
0: i'm very glad to hear that because from my own personal experience when I used to work at Inglis is that especially the Easter sale was a great place for everyone from around the world to come together and of course buy some elite yearlings and this year that obviously wouldn't have been the case I'm very glad to hear that they still got the opportunity to do so now before I let you go, a bit more of a personal question, because I had a look at all the videos uh, of the yearlings going through the ring. I was trying to follow as much of the sale as I could. The videos looked incredibly well done. Was there any help that you or any advice that you gave the vendors in terms of this, or was that all them off their own backs?
1: We Videos are something that are done or have been done in Australia pre-sale by a certain volume of vendors uh, for a number of years. There, There's... The volume, the volume of providers has grown and grown and grown in recent years as it's become more significant as a as a promotional resource. Uh, we ran the chairman sale in 2019, where we set out the objective that English would have every mayor in the sale filmed in advance of the sale. It's it's very challenging to do that, and I think we ended up coming up just short. But we had a set format for how we wanted uh, the mayors to be filmed so that we put ourselves in the best position to engage uh, international buyers or people who wouldn't be able to inspect mares in the flesh. Uh, So in advance of the sale, we provided a couple of those videos as templates to vendors. Most of them fill them in that way anyway. But again, I think we've come out of the sale and learned a bit more about what's important with those videos. It's certainly the most feedback we've ever had about them. Buyers very clearly want to see the horses walking on a flat, hard surface. It's not possible for everybody to provide that sort of surface, but I think it's probably an important consideration for people going forward. And they want to see as much comprehensive footage as they can. You know, side-on walking, front-on, hind-on, uh, headshots, uh, a 360-degree view, good evidence of limb conformation, front-and-hind limb. So I, I think the more that buyers are provided, you know, the more confidence they bid with them. A lot of the providers of videos for the sale uh, did an excellent job and I think those who maybe felt that their videos could improve, it's something they'll be be able to take forward into future sales.
0: Videos for prospective sales are done around the world, but it does feel that in Australia you guys are, I don't know, in a way a bit more keen to adapt technological advances. Does it seem to you that Australians are a bit more sort of forward-thinking in that way and really embrace uh, novel concepts sooner when it comes to those sales or in general the racing industry?
1: Look, it's hard for me to say. The one thing I would say is that it's a, there's a lot of on-selling of stock that happens here. You know, trainers buy horses. You know, a lot of the trainers, okay, this Easter hearing sale was different. The majority of the trainers who bought bought to order. But generally, uh, the trainers and the syndicators are speculating so any of the footage that's created by a vendor prior to a sale subsequently makes it easier for a vendor to try and on-sell a horse. I've had that feedback for years when I was at Coolmore and subsequently at English. Any videos that a vendor does pre-sale is something that a purchaser can use to on-sell a horse. So anything that is a vendor you're doing to make it easier for someone who buys your horse to, to syndicate it or to sell shares in it is usually met very favorably by buyers. It's also a marketing tool for farms or businesses. People use it as an opportunity to promote their professionalism. Obviously, it's a hugely competitive market for adjustment or sales preparation, etc. So uh, the more you can do to demonstrate the qualities of your farm or your operation, uh, the more likely you're to find favour or the more likely you are to find favour through the balance of the year in terms of picking up new business. You know, it's just nothing's taken for granted amongst the majority of the best vendors and it's hugely competitive and it's meant that even in the case of uh, the bigger vendors, they've been asked to step up to another level again just to compete with uh, some of the smaller, more innovative, innovative vendors. And it's created a very competitive marketplace, but the competition is healthy and it's meant that buyers have benefited from it.
0: Your old employer, Coolmore, was one of the main supporters of the sale, leading the way as a leading vendor by aggregate, as well as Coolmore's Tom Magnier being the sale's most generous buyer. What was their feedback?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I haven't actually researched it properly since the sale, but uh, it might even be a first that someone would be the leading vendor and the leading buyer at an Easter Yearing Sale. Great credit to them. It's obviously a sale that uh, they are, they've been very fond of and very supportive of for an awfully long time. You know, it was always a very important sale when I was at Coolmore. And evidently, it continues to be an important sale for them. Uh, I think the timing seems to suit their horses nicely. It suits their business nicely. Um, they obviously have a significant broodmare, broodmare band of uh, very high quality and, you know, a diverse range of young and proven stallions that suit a sale like Easter. They were evidently very pleased with what they saw of the stock in the sale from a purchasing point of view. Uh, hence, they were so strong through the sale that thought there was value to be found there. For us, as an auction house, it's about trying to engender uh, confidence among vendors that we're going to get help them get the best result. And evidently, Coolmore felt confident that we could do that for them and support us for quality yearlings. And the same said for a lot of the other major vendors.
0: Well, you've given us some incredible insight. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long. Thank you so much, Sebastian. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Well, I have certainly learned a bit about conducting a virtual auction, with Sebastian providing first-hand insight into the preparation and conduction of a live virtual sale on a big scale. I'm very curious to see how other thoroughbred sales companies across the globe will apply technology to ensure their planned sales can proceed, even when in a slightly different format. Let's skip ahead to the multi-talented jockey Forrest Boyce, who has amassed about $26.5 in prize money so far during her career, and she's no stranger to rehoming and retraining retired racehorses. Aside from the feel-good factor, this story highlights the versatility of thoroughbreds, as well as the joys that can come out of giving one a new home. Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Sorry about that earlier. Really. No, you're okay. What were you doing?
2: My, uh, I borrowed my parents' truck and went and got a pile of stones. <laughs> I'm making some stone walks around my house. Oh, wow. During this time we have off.
0: All... I'm assuming that you're right now not able to ride in any of the tracks either because the majority's out of business, sort of speak.
2: Yeah, I mean, outside of, like, we're working horses, but yeah, we aren't getting paid for anything.
0: It's a very tricky time for all of us, no doubt, but I'm calling you because yeah, I'm lovely. I'm hoping to chat a little bit about 8 to fast to catch and a little bit about your oh, no. uh, career as well, sort of trying to get some positive stories out there and hopefully get people a little bit entertained on a more lighter note and a more fun thing to listen to than the continuous news stream that I'm pretty sure all of us are at the moment glued to. I'll just straight away start from the beginning. A to Faster Catch for people that don't know about him. He has spent his last four years of his career running at stakes level, uh, primarily at Laurel Park and Pimlico. He was trainer Tim Keefe's first millionaire, won the Meredith Million Classic three times, has his own Facebook page. I had a look at, at it. Am uh-huh. I. Accurate in saying you rode him in his last nine starts, I believe? Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. This includes two out of his three Maryland Million Classic wins. Can you recall these two for us?
2: I can't recall them specifically, but like I remember um, riding him. He was a little bit tricky because he liked to just go. And so like the key was just trying to get him to relax get him comfortable and in a rhythm and once you did that it was game over with him so really the key with him was getting him out the gate and getting but then like making sure that he relaxed yeah Um, that he didn't burn up too quick because he's one of those horses and I'm sure you know you've ridden he's one of those horses that he doesn't feel like he's going that fast but then he'll be flying he'll you into that and like people like that's how he'll get you to mess
0: up as a job okay so what was the key to making sure that you weren't going fast enough i'm assuming you're you've got some form of I a clock in your head trying to make sure you got the right fractions
2: yeah i constantly like the whole time i would ride him i was like i'd always remind myself we're going much faster than i think we are <laughs> like, just because there'd be mornings i'd work in. And we'd come back, he's like, well, that was, like, 59 and change. And I was like, oh, geez," Because, you know, you don't want to work on that quick all the time. But it would feel like 101 or, you know, with another horse. So, yeah, whenever I rode him, I constantly thought to myself, go slow as you can go.
0: I had a look at some of his prior wins. Uh, He does seem to like running up the front end. Is that sort of helping him relax as well, do you think?
2: Yes, yes. He definitely liked being up. They're like, he likes kind of doing his thing. Yeah. He doesn't, But he also doesn't like people manhandling him. He, he knew how to run. He knew how to win. And you were along for the ride.
0: Do you think that that might be a reason you guys were a very good partnership because you're a female rider?
2: Uh, yes, I think so. But, like, Sheldon got on with him well. There are some guys out there that don't fully, that, you know, aren't always like, hey, you're going to do it my
0: way. Not wanting to take away anything from you as a rider by saying a female jockey, because I know that we have incredibly strong female jockeys here in Maryland and on the scene that there is no need to say, oh, it's a female jockey, you're a jockey, and you're just as good as any of the other jockeys riding out there. So I don't mean anything with that. There's
2: a difference between men and women. And um, I think there's a benefit to having a female rider at times as opposed close to a male rider. Just like sometimes I think there's times when... Um, a man is much more suited for certain horses. You know, people think, like, oh, the big bad colt, they aren't for women. But the funny thing is, like, I've actually ridden a couple of those over the years that the guys didn't want to ride. <laughs> and Like, they've turned out to be really nice horses. And, like, you know, there's something you said, I think, for getting along with horses and not trying, them, trying to get them to do what you want them to do. Just getting along with them, you know? you know i like the horse that tries hard if you're on a good horse you can win on the lead or you can win from behind yeah i'm not like i like i like all the different aspects of racing like i like the dirt i like the turf off the pace on the lead like it's all of that is fun to me and what makes it the most fun is when you have a horse that's like
0: trying for you well it's obviously very good to be very versatile as a jockey being able to make horses run with these different styles and being very adept at both. I just want to go back to the win in the Maryland Million Classic in 2013, because mm-hmm. I managed to dig up something about his owner that unfortunately passed away shortly after that, Arnie Heft. He was yeah. a 24 year old sportsman who co-owned uh, the Baltimore Bullets and played as a minor league Orioles pitcher in the 1930s. Did you get the chance to meet him before the race or what was that like for you?
2: Yes, actually I met him quite a few times because I did r- ride the horse a bit and um, he was an amazing man. He was so interesting. I used to talk to Tim Keith more about him because Tim knew him really well. But it was, it was cool riding for someone that's a bit of a legend. But it was neat that he was, Arnie was kind of interested, from my, like from what I knew of him, was, interested in all sports. So it was great that he had such a nice horse.
0: What would 8 to Fast the Catch have meant to him, you think?
2: Oh, like, he absolutely loved that horse. No, oh, he, like, he'd come out to the barn and stuff. He absolutely adored that horse. And, like, I know he wanted Tim to make sure the horse had a good life and everything. And Tim has been really good to, to all
0: that. Yeah, well, we'll definitely get back to that in a little bit, because, indeed, Tim has been instrumental in... Rehoming H. Catch. I know his family's been heavily involved with him. He has a nickname, Catcher. Where did that come from?
2: It's a well-suited name for that horse, just because he was so quick.
0: It's trying to catch him, basically, when he goes off on the lead. And most of the time, horses weren't able to.
2: Yeah, if he got that lead and was able to get an early fraction, you know, the, if you got the first quarter right, you're pretty much home free with him.
0: Incredibly so. tough. Gelding, who you've had such a great association with. What has a horse like him meant to you during your riding career? At the time,
2: oh, he he meant everything. Very seldom do you get to ride good horses, and then to have one that you get to ride consistently is great. Like I'm so like grateful that Tim gave me the opportunity and stuck with me. You know, because good horses make good riders. I'm a firm believer of that. You know, I was taught that as a kid. Uh, I feel like Catcher, you know, opened other doors for me.
0: Have you been able to find a horse like Catcher since?
2: Yes, I've ridden other, plenty of other good horses since then. Um, I haven't necessarily always had the opportunity to stick with them. Like I have with him. You know, just because I ride a lot of clientele that ships in and ships out. Typically, you know, they use me when... They come to Maryland, but they don't. I don't necessarily follow the horses around because they kind of use whoever that particular track that they're running
0: on. Yeah, that makes sense, and I guess is also one of the perhaps perks, but also downsides of being in a circuit that has so many different tracks, and hence a lot of different opportunities in terms of races and riders for the trainer. But I know that you've navigated your way around it pretty. Well, you've clocked up a fair few miles. Uh, what would you say is the track you ride at most, or what do you prefer? What Before all of this happened, what was your schedule like?
2: I always get a bit quiet in the winter time. Everybody kind of perceives me as being this great turf rider. And luckily, you know, like Tim's always been a good support. I used to have a trainer, Dickie Small, who we, you know, he had a ton of dirt horses, and we, you know, I won a lot of stakes for him, and he would keep me going in the winter. Ever since he passed, it's been a little bit more slim picking. Just because, you know, I like I said, I ride a lot of shipping. I'm very fortunate, like Tim Keith and um, Robbie Dale, people like that kind of keep me going in the winter.
0: I've had the fortune of watching you ride a fair few times at Laurel Park because you seem to always at least have a couple of rides here most days, which is great. Getting back to a to fast to catch because I keep just asking you questions about you your career, which I will continue to do so because I find it very intriguing and I'm very happy to get the chance to get to know you a little bit better. Um, a to fast to catch you already mentioned that as a racehorse, he wanted to be up front. And was he, in terms of temperament, do you think he was an aggressive racehorse? Or what was he like?
2: Oh, yeah. Like, I could never get him to the pole by myself. As far as working him, like, I always had to get, like, Dougie or Jody to Pony. But he was like that for everyone. The only one that I think Dr. to Gallatin was Pete, for, you know, the large guy that works for Tim Keith. He, he's a really good rider. But he wasn't, like, a hot horse. He was just, he knew his job. And, like I said, it, he was a very opinionated horse. Like, he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And he wasn't going to stand for someone pushing them around.
0: Do you think that's a characteristic that, Made him so good at the stakes level over all those years because four years at that level is very uh and quite a tenacious effort because most racehorses don't tend to stick around for that long. Oh,
2: I agree 100%. Like, yeah, horses tend to like get good, get bad, get good again kind of thing. I definitely think that had something to do with him acting at that level because I will say, of I've been fortunate to have ridden quite a few decent horses over the years. That is one, I feel like, fairly common trait, the really good ones I've You know, I guess it's confidence. Like, they're very confident animals when they're competing at that level. When they're able to, like, win at that big, greatest, big level, they have confidence.
0: Talking about after his racing career, how did his second career unfold? Because, of course, a horse with his talent surely... Would be clever enough or intelligent enough to possibly be good for something else. I know that you got him in August last year, and I think you coined it that this was his third career that he was starting on as a hunter. But what did he do before that?
2: (laughs) So Tim's daughter took him eventing. And like I said, he was so tough to get around the track in the morning when Tim's. When Tim was telling me, oh, yeah, my daughter's going to invent him. I was thinking, you know, he wasn't a hot horse. Like, he had a great brain, but he was just so strong. I was like, oh, my gosh, how are you guys going to do that? Yeah. Clearly, you must have just taken to it. He's just a class horse. So, yeah, Tim's daughter, Ryan Keith, she invented him successfully through the prelim level. So I got him after that happened because she had some big, fancy horse that she was taking advantage. I think Catcher, you know, being older and whatnot, he wasn't gonna, they weren't gonna take him to that level.
0: Because how old is he now? But would he I wanna say he might be
2: like
0: 13 or 14. Getting a slightly bit older than a possibly very nice, fresh six, seven year old to go to all the big events with, I'm assuming.
2: Yeah. And like, and just like, a, you know, like it's hard being a top level racehorse you know you're being a top level athlete at like the racing level is the same at the eventing level is, you know i'm
0: sure you've presented have you evented over the years ever? um i actually did more dressage and show jumping i never competed in eventing oh, okay. i did compete in dressage and show jumping. i did do a couple of like oh, little did? things yeah but uh, i wasn't very good at eventing <laughs> 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 well yeah like like the top level dressage
2: horses even like it's hard on them um, when you're competing at the highest level you know I think Tim, and I, I, I don't quote me on this, but I feel like Tim felt like, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's already competed at the top level. Like, he doesn't necessarily need to go and do that at this stage in life.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. So how did it come about that you ended up taking him in?
2: I guess it sounds like, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but when I went to pick him up, it sounded like they kind of, ha- like, the whole family discussed it. They didn't want him. He's not the type of horse that's happy just sitting in a field. Um, He likes having a job. Uh, I have another horse of Tim that I turned into a Fox Center, and I had been, like, horse showing him and stuff. And I kept showing him all the videos, and I'm glad I did. And, (laughs) you know, I don't know if that was part of it. But uh, he offered Tetra to me once they decided uh, not to, you know, stop on the whole eventing thing. I'm so grateful they did. It's been so much fun, like being reunited with him
0: and stuff. What has he been like re-educating him as a hunter?
2: Funny, because, uh, he actually took right to it. He loves it. He gets a little grumpy with me if I ride him too many days in the ring. But, out of fact, I mean, he absolutely loved it. Like, he loved watching the hounds. I think he loved just, like, running through the field because every I'd just hunt him in a snaffle. Because he, like I said, he's absolute class. Like, I, if you had told me that I would be able to fox hunt that horse in a snaffle back when I was riding him in races, I would say, no way. <laughs> but, and like every once in a while, he'll grab the bit and give me a, like, a little bit of a scare, like he's going to run off. But I think he just absolutely loves it and, you know, it's good fun for him.
0: So, whereabouts do you take him and how often do you go?
2: It kind of works out well for me because I typically, you know, my schedule lightens up in the winter time. That's when we're fox me. So I, I was fortunate enough to hunt him about once a week this winter, at least. I hunt with Uncle Harford's, the Uncle Charford Hound. And, you know, I mean, he's great. Like, he's a great jumper. Like, it was so much fun. I mean, he jumped plenty of line fences. Like, even the people out there. Like, I had a couple people offer me money for him, and I'm like, sorry, he's not for sale. Like, he just, not every horse takes that. It. It's a very difficult thing to ask of a horse, you know, because you have the hounds running around from day one, the hounds could run between his legs and he would never bite at them or anything. Like, it's just absolutely
0: perfect. I guess that confidence of him comes into play yet again.
2: Yes, Yeah.
0: So how did you get into the hunting scene? Because it's quite a specific thing to get into. Um, in the Netherlands where I was, I had friends that did it, and I know they did it in England, but I wasn't aware that they were hunting around here as well.
2: Oh, yeah, if you ride and all, you're more than welcome. You should come sometime next season if you know <laughs> if you're still in this area it's great fun i grew up doing it i grew up like we i was in pony club and hunting. so i kind of it was a jack of all trades after
0: fun. and then you ended a little
2: up bit of everything.
0: transferring into horse racing
2: yeah yeah well like when i was 12 i went and worked for this one chase trainer that was Pretty much everybody on the East Coast had worked for him at some point in time. A guy named Mikey Smith. You know, from there, like, I just had a... You know, it's something I always wanted to do with the racing, and it was cool because he had this farm, and, you know, at a young age, you would go there and learn how to gallop horses. Yeah, no, How did you get into horse racing? <laughs> I did pony We were it. doing this size, and
0: show up. Yeah, no. Well, I was going to say, I definitely have to take you up on your offer because I actually very much miss the jumping side. Um, my first job in horse racing, I was an exercise rider and I actually learned how to school ho- horses over fences and hurdles as well, so I miss that side of it. Bit of speed, quite sizable obstacles, I'm down. <laughs>
2: Oh, absolutely. It's fun when you're on a good jumper.
0: Nothing's worse than schooling a bad one. Yeah. Schooling the babies has been tricky. I'm not sure that's the part I miss because that's the one that you're holding your breath, hoping they will lift up their legs. So it's quite impressive to learn that catcher has been so good at jumping because I do feel that not all horses know how to lift their legs up and know how to keep themselves and the rider safe.
2: Absolutely, like, especially because he learned at an older age. Like, Mikey taught me when I was a kid, and he is, you can pretty much make most horses a good jumper just with the right schooling. But it is harder for horses that are learning later in life. And it is pretty impressive. You know, because uh, prelim event course, like I feel like that stuff is fairly sizable. And shoot, some of the stuff he jumps this winter, outback something was quite large.
0: Well, we definitely have a nice future ahead with him having fun, hopefully getting back into it, because I'm assuming right now there is no hunting, right?
2: Yeah, no, we had to end the season early, just like everything else.
0: Have you had Christmas. any other ex-race horses that you've ridden, ended up uh, under your care, or is he the first one?
2: I know. Uh, there's one. My mother's hunter, actually, uh, Christmas Rush. I'd ridden him. But he ran for a nickel. He wasn't a whole lot uh, as far as a racer. He was a big, pr- I think they spent like, someone spent 300000 on him at the yearling sale, I believe. And then he wound up running, winning for the nickel at Colonial Downs years ago. And so I wound up with him, and he's been a great fast runner. And then the other really nice one I had was from Alex White, a horse named Irish Embassy she'd given us. I'd ridden him in a couple point a points I don't think I ever actually rode him on the fly or at the track. He, he's he been a great fox runner as well. I think horses, if they like it, like, it's a really good life for them. You know, for X-Race horses, if they can get, get on board with the hounds and the horn, because, you know, you're running through fields. It's a pretty good second career for animals.
0: It is indeed. And hence, I really wanted to highlight how great it is to give these tough race horses that have done so much for us, for you, for everyone involved in horse racing, that, second chance so to speak or that chance to do something else and possibly have a lot of fun as a hunter a show jumper dressage horse a hack you name it and there was something I came across on the Facebook page and I'm pretty sure that was by you that you were saying how good of a jumper he is and that there was a little girl did she ended up jumping one of the fences with him or on him or how did that work out?
2: Oh, yeah. there. Yeah. One day after uh, having this winter, yeah, some little girl, she was very timid about some jumps, and she just followed it over. I was like, oh, just put your horse right on his bus, or, like, her little pony. I was like, just shove it up his tail, and you'll be fine. <laughs> and, like, oh, you would have thought she had hit the lottery. It was the cutest thing ever. Because, um, yeah, that was the other thing. Yeah, he had to, like, leave the field on the, like, the second field at the children's hunt. And so those were like for the kids that weren't quite brave enough to jump all the, you know, they weren't quite ready to jump all the fences, but wanted to jump some
0: of them. Well, that sounds like he's really found his calling. Yeah, now he yeah. has. Well, I've very enjoyed learning about the Catch and what you're doing with him. And I'm definitely taking you up on your offer. I would love to come and hunt once they start again in the winter, once this is all over, once hopefully we all come out of this current um, epidemic safe and sound. So I very much hope you're going to stay safe and your family stays safe as well. And hoping to soon see you again at the racetrack because I'm hoping that at some point we'll resume and I'll get the chance to see you in the winner's enclosure at some point. Thank you for listening to the first ever episode of Talk Racing to Me with Naomi. Subscribe to the In The Money Team podcast on iTunes or Google Play so you don't miss out on our next episode. For questions or suggestions, do not hesitate to reach out to me via at Naomi Tucker on Twitter or send me an email via NaomiTucker at live.nl. And that's Tucker with two Ks. Don't forget to tell your friends to tune in, but also stay safe during these challenging times look after one another, check in regularly, and know that you're not alone in this.